Thank you, Joni. Well, we're in a series entitled Portrait, as the video kind of showed you. And uh, each week in this series, our, our goal has been to, um, you know, look at a key distortion of Christianity, something that has been emblematic of Christianity and the Christian story over history, um, and consider how Scripture, how the Word of God actually represents that distortion and offers us a clarity about who God really is and about then who we're called to be as God's people. So that's been our goal. And this week, we're looking at a common perception that Christianity is anti-intellectual. Perhaps you read the little paragraph in the bulletin. And in many circles that I run in, in particular in places like Seattle, many of you run in, especially among younger generations, there's this growing sense that to be a Christian is to commit nothing short of intellectual suicide. Uh, Baylor professor Alan Jacobs, who is himself a Christian, he put it this way once, that many outsiders believe Christianity insulates people from thinking. Often young people, including many insiders, and those of you who are here, doubt that Christianity boosts your intellect. And then he says, in our research, we discovered a range of opinions on this, but Christianity is not generally perceived to sanction a thoughtful response to the world. And then he goes on to say this, a sentiment that's been illustrated to us by comments like this one, quote, Christianity stifles curiosity. People become unwilling to and really incapable of facing their doubts and their questions. It makes people brain dead. Christianity makes people brain dead. I don't know if you've ever heard that. That's a really scathing critique. Uh, you, you know the sticker that some Christians put on their cars. I hope this wasn't you. The one shaped like a fish, the ichthus. Uh, that comes from a first century tradition where Christians would carve this or paint this on their doorframe of their home or a business that they owned. We still have this today sometimes. Uh, to let people know they were followers of Christ. That's great, right? All good. But then others, in response to the sticker today, have put another sticker on their bumper. And you know this one. Same, same shape as a sticker, but it says in the middle, as legs, and says in the middle, evolve or Darwin or something like that. Nice, right? It's all good. That sticker's about evolution, which the owner of the car, I think, mistakenly sees as something fundamentally against Jesus. And actually, uh, I read somewhere by Rob Bell that he actually he saw, uh, saw two car bumpers, or a car bumper with the Evolve sticker upside down and the Jesus sticker on top saying, oh yeah, well two can play that game. So that, that's a joke. And the kids left, so it's an adult joke. Okay, anyway, uh, and so the battle of the bumper goes on and, and all of it in this, it's this massive exercise in missing the point, right? So which begs the question, what's the point? You know, if, if the perception is that Christianity, if we're just whistling in the dark, you know, groping around for this truth, and the response is on both sides that, that this sort of trivial feud over the high ground of truth, what's the point? What's the point? Well, and how might we be people who engage the world in a way that's different, that, that articulate and present Christ to others, especially this, those that are skeptical in our lives? And that might include some of you. Um, who've been alienated by the church, who, by their, because their questions and their convictions, like, I can't be there because that's like, I have to check my brain at the door, and that's just not going to work for me. Um, I don't know how many of you that, that is, but I talk to a lot of you, and that's your experience, and you still come. So how might we be people who provoke curiosity about Jesus instead of indifference, um, who provoke, like I did, uh, that story did wonder, who is this God? Well, one way to respond to this critique and then and learn that new posture is to go to Acts chapter 17, Paul's sermon there, because he goes to Athens, and specifically the Areopagus, which is this prominent rock outcropping near the Acropolis at the very center of the city of Athens. 
And the key here is that Athens was the intellectual center of the, of the Roman world. Sort of like the London, like London is, or New York is to the, the financial sort of center of the world of our day. Uh, Athens is that to the intellectual, intellectuals. It's where you went if you're an intellectual. And what's more, Athens was famous for being a place where philosophers who gathered there didn't believe. They were very skeptical. They rejected traditional religion. And, and so Paul went there, the very middle of the intellectual, skeptical capital of the world, and he began this dialogue and debate with those there, these philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics, about Christianity. And it's within that debate and that dialogue that we find our way, that we today, 21st century Seattle, Bethany, Northeast, find our way. That it's where Paul shows us how we might present Christ to others in a new way. Um, and, and, and it involves two things. So if you have your bulletin, the outline in there, as I often do, is irrelevant. <laughs> We're going to look at two things, um, very simple things. Um, and here they are. It begins, the posture begins with affirmation, verses 22 and 23, and then uh, extends into invitation. So we're going to look at affirmation and invitation. That's it. So first, uh, affirmation, verses 22 and 23. Paul says when he begins his message in verse 22, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. So Paul there affirms that everyone in Athens believes. Everyone believes. No matter who you are, whether you're the most staunch unbeliever or skeptic or the most faithful, committed Christian, everyone believes. And I believe that if Paul came to Seattle today, South Lake Union, uh, downtown, you know, one of the skyscrapers, Amazon, Lake City, Wedgwood, U District, UW, Gates Foundation, Fred Hutch, wherever you find yourself Monday to Friday, he would say the exact same thing. He'd stand there in your lunch counter or cafeteria. You are all very religious. You all believe. He'd say the same exact thing, and here's, here's why. Maybe you don't adhere to formal religion. Maybe you don't adhere to institutional religion. You don't go to church, orthodox faith, but you're, you have deeply religious beliefs, and here's why. Jonathan Sachs, he's the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, who I've quoted a few times during this series. He wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal sometime back where he said that all human beings, even secular human beings in secular societies, have to live for something. Everybody has to live for something. In other words, we all have to live on the basis of some answers to some certain kind of unknowable questions. You can't live, he says, unless you have the answers to these questions. For example, what are we here for? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Uh, What's the meaning of life? I think that the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy tried to answer that one, but thank you. There's one person that read that. (laughs) Is there an afterlife? Is there life on other planets? Um, what's wrong with life? What, what would put life right? Like, how should I be living my life? Ethics, right? These are all questions that we all every day throughout the day are seeking answers to in order to live, right? Which is why almost everyone mourns the death of innocent people. That's why this video is so powerful for all of us. It's why everyone longs for a world of justice, not oppression, of peace, not war. Um, it's a why... why we all long for a world where everyone has enough rather than, rather than a few holding half the wealth while a billion people starve, right? It's why almost everybody rejoices at the beauty of creation. It's why when you walk around Green Lake, people stop and look up at the sky. And if you see a group of people at Green Lake stopping and looking at the sky, you should stop and look too. Like that's just, <laughs> it's why almost everybody wonders why life is so short and why good people die young. All which say there's this body of ethics woven into our our hearts, the human heart that's put there by God. That's what Paul's saying here. 
As the author of Ecclesiastes puts so pithily, he says, God's placed eternity in the hearts of people. Or as Paul says in Romans, uh, when outsiders who've never heard of God's law, who've never heard of the gospel, follow it more or less by instinct, what that proves is that God's law is not something alien to us, imposed on us from without, but it's woven into the very fabric of creation. It's woven into us. There's something, Paul says, deep within all of us that echoes God's no and God's yes. And this is important for us as followers of Christ, as the church gathered, because it's our frequent misunderstanding of of how human nature has fallen so irreparably and is so broken that has led to this false belief among some sectors of Christianity. A false belief that says that nothing true can come out of the mouths of those who don't have faith in Jesus, right? You've heard this. The result of which has been this withdrawal from the world out of a posture that is strangely both arrogant and fearful. Arrogant because it comes from this belief that we have all the truth and nobody else does, right? And we have nothing to learn from anybody else. Fearful because we believe, some people believe, that by digesting that truth or their culture, their culture, we put it in those, there, right there. It's going to pollute us, that we're going to somehow be corrupted, right? Uh, we take this verse, be in the world but not of the world. We twist it until it no longer means what it meant, distancing ourselves from the culture around us, aligning ourselves against the culture, when in reality becoming a student of culture is what's going to reveal God's deepest truths. That's what God or Paul says here. You know, it, it, it articulated through the longings of the human heart are, are things, longings for beauty and justice and intimacy and joy and healing. That's what Paul's saying. Or at the very least, that can be a result because everyone's searching. Everybody is searching. They may not know it. They may not be able to put it into words yet. From the youngest person here to the oldest, the most far out skeptical to the one who's been here every day of their life, everybody's searching. So that's number one. That's the first thing we can learn from Paul that we can affirm others, all others, in their searching. Everybody believes. Everybody here believes. Now, before leaving this first point, I want to make another point or clarify this real quick because I can hear somebody saying, wow, this sounds like universalism. I mean, this, this sounds like you're, you're saying, or Paul's saying, you believe what you believe. I'm going to believe what I believe. We're all going to be one believing happy family, hakuna matata, right? It's just going to be all good. I mean, is that, what Paul, is that what Paul's doing here? Is this this universal affirmation of belief and just calling it, calling it a day? And the short answer to that is no. <laughs> He's not, this is not universalism. Here's the long answer. This is point number two, invitation. So verses 24 to 27. Paul, the second thing he does, he gets up to speak after engaging in this rich dialogue with the Epicureans and Stoics. He's invited to speak. He affirms everybody there, everybody. And then he invites those there uh, and challenges them really through the invitation with two things that I want to talk about. Two things they need. Despite just believing, what are the things you need to kind of in, in add into your faith? And here's the two things. You need a God-sized God, and you need a human-sized hope. And this is kind of what distinguishes the story of God, Christianity, from just kind of the searching for God, okay? So let's look at each of those real quick, and then we'll respond. Number one, Paul says you need a God-sized God. And this is in verses 23 to 25, where Paul's walking around Athens, sort of sightseeing. He tells his listeners he's found this altar to an unknown God, okay? All of which Paul says is proof that they're ignorant of the very thing that they're worshiping. They don't know it. In other words, he's saying you're worshiping without knowing it. I mean, try that on at work tomorrow. You're worshiping without knowing it. People will be like, what? Uh, and that's essentially what Paul's doing as he describes this walk around Athens to this crowd of philosophers and skeptics. He's saying, 
you know, you, you are worshiping. You just don't know you're worshiping. And what's even more interesting for us here today is not really that he does that, but it's kind of how he does it. So look at uh, verse 24. Paul represents God to them using very classical orthodox formulations. He says, God's creator of the heavens and the earth. The God who made the world is the NIV, and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So it's a very classical way of describing God. The summary of which is simply this. Your God is just too small. Like you've made this little altar and it's just too small. Like you don't have a big enough God for your, your moral intuitions, your intellectual aspirations. You put your God in a box, which is a ridiculous thing for a thinking person to do. Like your God's too small. But, and this, and this is key, rather than arguing with them about their idolatry and yelling at them for being so God forsaken and beyond the pale rather than being like you're so small minded and, and putting a Jesus fish on his car or like worse, a bumper sticker or tweeting out a rant against those God-forsaken sinners out there. Instead of doing that, he says, I see how deeply religious you are. Think of that as a tweet. <laughs> I see, y'all, how deeply religious you are. It's totally different, a way of entering into the conversation. I see how much you believe. I see how that belief is affirmed by this altar to an unknown God, by your science, <laughs> by your philosophy, by, by your coding on your computer, <laughs> by your teaching. I see how it's affirmed by that. And by your poets. He, he, indeed, in verse 28, he says, look here. He says, your own poets say, we are his offspring. And see, there Paul's quoting the Sicilian Stoic philosopher, Eratus. And you don't need to know too much about who Eratus is. Don't worry about that. Uh, what's more important is that Paul's quoting him. He's, he's using this illustration of a Stoic philosopher to show faith in Yahweh. And this is a radical thing to do in that day. Radical. Uh, it's like, I guess it's like the nearest equivalent we have is like Kanye <laughs> today. You know, most people think, no, this guy could never, never come near Christianity. And now he's declaring faith in Jesus. And, and so it's a radical thing to do. Indeed, just before quoting Eratus, Paul quotes another Greek philosopher, Epimenides. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's a direct quote from another philosopher. And the point is, remember, the philosophers didn't believe. They were staunchly skeptical, with atheists. What he's doing, he says, he's, he's been reading their sacred texts. He, he's been reading their scriptures, so to speak, if they could put it in those words. And then he's inviting them to see it out, those within those texts, those scriptures, not the Bible, you know, not like the, the Hebrew Bible, are not lies, not untruth, but, but beauty and deep truth. There's truth in there is what he's saying. Uh, Jeff Cuse, who's a professor at SPU and a fellow Bethany congregant over at Green Lake, he said it this way once in his book, Your Neighbor's Hymnal. It's just a great little book. He said, reasoning with many of the urbane thinkers of Athens, Paul noted that, the man, that many of the things that they held as being purely secular and only of human creation were actually pointing their attention to the creator of all things. He goes on to say that the question is whether we're willing to explore this as a possibility ourselves. That perhaps what is giving a painting beauty is something more than the painter. And what gives a song its transcendence is something beyond the skill of the performer. You know, perhaps, muses Paul, there's a grander work happening in culture. And that even in so-called secular society, God is poking through. God is poking through. And I love that. That notion that God is poking through. And this is a message of hope for us because... 
this idea to look deeper into the things that fill our eyes with joy and meaning and, have, and then have the courage to ask whether there's this deep joy we experience in the music and the art and the science and theater and literature and creation is because of something else stirring. That's a very countercultural and courageous step to take. Something pointing beyond itself to something much deeper and more profound within itself. Would we have that courage? As you know, I don't think we wear the evangelical brand, but I hate to tell you, Bethany's a non-denominational evangelical church, so would we have that courage to invite others to consider something with, that's within them, stirring, by which we live, we all live and move and have our being? That's the first thing Paul does. He says you need to have a God-sized God. But, you know, your God needs to grow. But here's the key, and here's where we want to end. Not just a God-sized God. Also, a God just as much who wants relationship with us. Uh, a human-sized hope. So verse 26, Paul says, From one man, this creator God, this God-sized God, made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries of their nations. Uh, God did this so they'd seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, he's, though he's not very far from any of us. Notice here, Paul isn't just talking about a God as creator. Uh, he's not just talking about God's sovereignty and God's immensity and God's otherness. He doesn't just talk about God in the abstract sense. He gets very personal. He talks about God as someone who's involved in history, as someone who sets out the nations and their boundaries, politics. I mean, think about that for a moment. A God is involved in politics in, 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 in the moment in which we sit today. Think about a God who cares about the outcomes of our elections. That's what Paul's saying. <laughs> What's more, he doesn't stop there. He says, you know, even though there's a God out there who governs history and that God is good, uh, we also have a God who's noble in relationship and that God is ultimate. We have a God who's noble in relationship and that God is ultimate. Indeed, Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus here um, as a way of saying that though Yahweh, this God of Israel, is cosmic, sovereign, creator, he became one of us. And he wants relationship with us. And it's in relationship with us that he promises to heal us and everything that's wrong with us and the world around us. That's how God's going to do it and how God's doing it. He's the human-sized God whom we all hope and long for. The person behind all of our searching for meaning. The way, the truth, the life. That's what Jesus says. That's the summary of Paul's sermon here. The last thing he says, and then he's interrupted. If you read verse 32 which we didn't read. Some of, the, some of the Stoics and Epicureans sneer at him. Others, hey, I want to hear more. And Paul just does like an ancient Near Eastern mic drop. He just leaves, like conversation over. It's very abrupt. But that's okay. Because Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus at length. If you read the letters of Paul, at length. And as you read those accounts, what you begin to see are some major themes. And one of the major themes where I want to end is the theme of suffering and why we showed this video today. So you and I hear resurrection. What do you immediately think of? Jesus? Well, that's, that's good too. What else? Did you say Jesus? Thank you, Andrew. I was hoping Easter would come up, but we think event. We think a triumphal event. And that's how most cultural Christians relate to Christianity as well. That's why they come back to church on Easter. Because Easter's an event. Uh, they come once or twice a year. They sing the songs, hear the talk. And that's why many of us miss the point. We fail to see that 
any meaning in this story of God uh, because resurrection's not merely an event. I mean, it's an event. It happens, as wonderful as Easter is, but resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, listen to this, is a process. It was a process. It's a process that God engaged in. It was the culminating moment of Jesus' life on earth that we celebrate, but it was merely part of a longer process that began at the beginning of time and ended, hasn't even really ended, because we're all involved in it. It's a process that involved living, being human, fully human, involves joy and celebration, all the things we celebrate on Easter. But also, listen to this, resurrection involves doubt. Resurrection involves sorrow. Resurrection involves suffering. It's a, it's a real catastrophic suffering. Like Jesus was really catastrophically suffering on the cross, and that's how he got to resurrection. Uh, he didn't reject it. He embraced it. That was part of Jesus' experience. He integrated that into the process of his life and rose from that. And that, that's important because, see, the Epicureans and the Stoics, whom Jesus is having this debate with, they utterly rejected suffering. Not only did they reject God, the idea of God, they utterly rejected suffering. See, the Stoics viewed that the meaning of life was not to let life get to you. Like, don't let them see you sweat. Right? That's how we say it. Just man up. Don't let them see you cry. Don't break down. Don't grieve. You know, I got up here and cried. That would be game over for a Stoic. The Epicureans, on the other hand, they believe that when you die, that's it. Carpe diem. Like, just suck the marrow out of life. There might be some gods out there, but eh, they don't care. They're so remote. They have nothing to do with us. So don't be good. Don't be virtuous. Just live your life the way you want to live your life. Be free. Live for pleasure. This is a very Seattle thing, right? And of course, that leads to all kinds of hedonism and a whole raft of other issues, but that's another sermon for another day. The point is, Paul's pronouncement that the resurrection of Jesus is the answer to all the deep meaning questions is a radical departure from the culture of his day and ours. Like, he's not just going against the current of culture. He swings so far upstream from culture that he's inviting them to consider the, the possibility that hope is actually found in a different stream. Like, embracing suffering was so mind-blowing to them. That's why they say, ugh, I don't want to hear any more of this. Uh, and what he's saying is, in the experience of suffering and hardship and loss, that's, those are the waters in which we find our meaning and our life and our purpose. It's there that you find Jesus. And this is significant for us because as Christ followers today, as the church gathered today, we can present Christ to others in their doubts. Do you hear this? We can present Christ to others in their intellectual questioning. We can present the Christian story in their unbelief, in their scientific reasoning and wrestlings, in the midst of deep meaning question, Christ. Not as an either or, but in the midst of that, Christ is it's an additive process. Did you hear Sean Crispin say that? The questions about life and death and future, this is a human enough sized hope that God or Paul's presenting to us. A hope that says it's it's a process, all of life. It's not an event. <laughs> Christianity's not about getting your ticket to heaven punched and going away. It's 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 not about avoiding hardship and pain. It's not even about getting a bomb proof answer to all your big questions. It's a process, it's an additive process in which the moment you're in right now, if it's a hard moment, you're being embraced by and can embrace a God who lived for you. That's what it means to follow Christ. To believe and obey and worship a God big enough, wonderful enough for our heart's deepest desires, and at the same time, a God who presents to us a human-sized hope. 
And that's why we're coming to this table today. It's because at the table, uh, Jesus got together with some friends who were probably like a lot of us, had a lot of doubts, <laughs> didn't believe this is the way the story is supposed to go. And yet he presented himself to them in that moment. He says, you know what? Let me be a God-sized God to you. Let me present to you possibilities about the future. Possibilities that are presented to you in the humanity of God, the, the flesh and blood of Jesus. It'll be broken. It'll be buried. It'll die. And yet, through that, that journey, you'll experience life and this hope and resurrection. So we come to that uh, because mysteriously Christ dwells at this table with us. He meets us here and allows us to be embraced by him. So I'm going to take a moment to pray and then um, I'll invite our, our community team up and we'll invite our kids back to participate in this with us. Let's take a moment now. God, we thank you uh, that you are a God big enough for all of our questions. That as we have questions here today of where we're from, where we're going, how we should live, if we can believe that those questions are, are not too immense for your shoulders, that you invite us to cast all those things upon you. And yet, God, we can also thank you that you don't just ask us to cast them on you and cast them away, but you invite us into relationship with you where we get to have this conversation about those questions. And you invite us into maybe deeper questions than we thought we were asking. Deeper experiences, God. Experiences that definitely involve the pain that we feel. And yet, God, um, provide us with a hope and sustain us for the new day. So might this table now, God, as we come to it, be just that, a place where we can come as broken people who need healing, each one of us, God. And yet also, God, find hope. Pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you're new, well, actually, this is going to be new for all of us. We're going to have our communion stations in a couple new spots today. So kind of back over here by the cross, back over here by the piano. Uh, I think you'll come up these aisles and exit those aisles. We'll, it'll be a hot mess otherwise, but it's okay. It always is. These are gluten-free elements, and so everyone can participate in this. And as the kids are coming back, if you're a parent here, this isn't like something we want to mandate for them. So we understand that there's a journey that they're on as I talk about questions and doubts. We don't want to say, well, this is just something everybody does. Um, we also want to say that it's not, it's, it also isn't something that you can't do if you don't, haven't stood here on this stage and said, I believe. Like I said, this is a place. God is a big enough God presenting to us a human-sized hope. If Paul can stand there and say in, in an idol, you're worshiping without knowing it. I believe every person here, the most skeptical, the youngest, the oldest, whoever you are, can come to this table and find Jesus. And so I'd invite you to it, whoever you are, and see what Jesus does with you and with your family, okay? So I think our servers are here. <laughs> They're going to take their spots. I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> we'll worship God. <laughs>